prayed a very simple prayer in my bedroom one day and uh, I asked Jesus to please save me and to forgive my sins. Uh, at that stage, I'd never read the Bible, but my mother had given me a tract of John's Gospel. And in the, at the end of the tract, it, it suggested a prayer one should pray for salvation. And so I prayed that prayer and I was, I was sincerely sorry for my sins and, and aggrieved about the, 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 the um, conflict and, and drama that sin had caused in my own life, but also aggrieved about the effects of sin throughout the world. And I think looking back now, it was the Holy Spirit who was revealing to me the, the exceeding wickedness of the present world. And, and I'd never really thought about that until that time. So I believe that God saw that I, I was sincere in my prayer and, um, and I believe that he would save me. Uh, I'd been going to church for a while at that period of time. And um, it was a church that had altar calls at the end of each sermon. Now, this is when a preacher calls people to come out to the front of the church to a symbolic altar where people would consecrate their lives to Christ. Um, and afterwards, they would usually repeat a prayer after the preacher, and that supposedly sealed their salvation. And when people responded to the altar call, the preacher or some allocated helpers would afterwards congratulate the new convert and welcome them into the family of God. And I'm sure quite a few would be familiar with what I'm talking about. Um, so even though I had already prayed the prayer, um, asking Jesus to come into my life, I also felt that I had to do it openly in front of witnesses because I, I, I'd read that Jesus said in John's Gospel that whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father in heaven. So I responded to the altar call in front of the whole church, not for salvation as such, but to, to display publicly that I was not ashamed of Christ. But what I noticed after a while was that some people came to the altar repeatedly, apparently to, you know, make absolutely sure that they were saved. And, and I think some preachers encourage this. You know, the size of the response to the altar call uh, was often seen as an indication of the preacher's success. You know, if nobody responds to the altar call at the end of the sermon, it could be perceived that the sermon was lacking in some way or it may reflect badly on the preacher himself. And some preachers could be pretty insistent, you know. Um, the process would sort of go something like this. The preacher would ask those present in the service to, to close their eyes and bow their heads and then he would ask, when every eye was closed, every, every head was bowed, he would ask those who wanted to invite Jesus into their heart to put their hands up in the air. And if people raised their hands, the preacher would say, yes, I see that hand at the back, yes, this young lady at the front, and so on, you can put your hands down now. And, uh, and sometimes I'd, I'd peek, you know, I'd, instead of, I'd go like this. And, um, you know, the hands in the air did not actually respond to reality a lot of the time. <laughs> there were a lot more uh, uh, people called out that didn't raise their hands. And, uh, but such is the pressure, you know, to, for, for preachers, some preachers to be seen to be successful. Now, despite this problematic process, I'm sure that God has saved people using this particular method. But there is a problem with all of this. 
Many people who respond in alter, to altar calls in order to receive salvation can never actually receive any reassurance from it. And that's why they respond more than once, sometimes multiple times. And when other people in the church witness this, uh, it sort of makes salvation look a little bit tenuous. People start to question whether they have really believed or done enough to be truly saved. Doubts arise in their mind. Um, maybe I wasn't sincere enough when I, when I came to the altar call the first time. Maybe, you know, there's still sin in my life. I need to get right with God. I need to recommit my life again to God because I'm backslidden and so on and so forth. And so the next service, they would respond again, trying to get some reassurance that God really has accepted them. And for other people who observe this from the pews, a different sort of dilemma can arise. They may think to themselves, well, I haven't actually really ever committed my life to Christ at an altar call. But, you know, I've seen people going out multiple times. So maybe it just means that you can never, ever really truly be sure of your salvation. You know, you, you just got to hope for the best. And sadly, because of these people's bi biblical illiteracy, many of these people never unresolved their doubt about their spiritual condition before God. They never progressed to understand that God has, past tense, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Maybe you're listening today and this applies to you. Perhaps you've responded to the invitation to open your heart and to ask Jesus to come in, but you don't even really know what that actually means to you. Well, my prayer today is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 1, 17 to 18. I trust that what I'm about to say will be a great blessing to you from our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we've already seen in the LBC, who are all involved in salvation. Now, would you please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bibles. And uh, we are going to read from verses 1 to 14. So that's Ephesians chapter 1, Astra, when you're ready. And uh, we're going to read verses 1 to 14. And um, we're going to be reading, I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. Verse 1. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he may gather together in, all one, in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. The book of Ephesians itself is a high point in Christian doctrine and practical Christian living. The second half of the book, verses uh, chapters 4 to 6, talk about Christian living, application of, of the learning that we go through in the first half of the book. And today and next Sunday, we're going to be focusing on that Christian learning because it follows that if we don't learn about our calling, we can never understand how we should live our lives. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is teaching about the wealth of spiritual blessings that belong to the church and therefore to each and every one of us who are in Christ. The phrase in Christ uh, is repeated seven times in the first 14 verses that we just read. Now the, this, import, this opening passage is uh, a fundamentally important in understanding of why we are in Christ and who we are in Christ. Because without this understanding we are always going to struggle in our Christian walk. Paul details to the Ephesians and by to us, by extension to us also, that each person in the Godhead has blessed every believer with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The passage we've read can be broken down into three sections. We're going to look at the first section today. And that is the blessings from God the Father in verses 1 to 6. And then next time we'll go on to look at the blessings from God the Son, verses 7 to 12 and blessings from the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14. And we're going to examine these sections one by one. Now, Paul begins his teaching by introducing himself as an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Now, this is not some prideful, self-attending statement, but it's an explanation of how he can speak with authority, the authority that emanated from his calling. And we know that Paul did not choose his calling. Galatians 1.1 says his calling was not from men, not through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Galatians 1.1. Therefore, Paul could rightly claim that the source of his entirety was nothing less than the will of God. Paul's letter is addressed to the saints, those who are faithful in Jesus Christ. Now, in Roman Catholicism and certain other Christian traditions, a saint is someone who, who is a holy person and who is known for their, you know, heroic sanctity and who is thought to be in heaven. This view focuses on the attribute of the saint themselves and sets the saint apart as somehow being superior to ordinary believers. But the Bible teaches that the word saint refers to a believer's position in Christ. 
rather than what the person is in himself. In Christ, all believers are saints, even if they are not always saintly. Um, the opening address of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians reads, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And we know that the saints in Corinth uh, had some way before their, their practices uh, reflected their position, if you like. But the Bible still calls them saints. Now, you know, we may not be immersed in, in some of the uh, outrageous practices of the Corinthian church, but just like them, we are also a work in progress. Yet our position as saints can never change. The introduction to Ephesians also says the letter is to saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The word translated as faithful in the Greek pistos means the believing or, or, or trusting ones. Now, you know, of course, Christians should be faithful in the sense that they are always reliable and, and, and trustworthy. We should be known for that. But the primary idea is here is that they believe in Jesus Christ and trust in Jesus Christ as the only Saviour and Lord. So while, while the immediate context of the letter is addressed to the saints of the local church in Ephesus, it is also addressed to the universal church, all of us in all ages at all times. And Paul continues, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's readers had already been saved by grace through faith as an unmerited gift. But they also needed grace to deal with the, the trials and tribulations of ordinary life, dealing with doubts that inevitably arise in the cause of fighting the good fight of faith against their earthly and spiritual enemies. And again, we're no, no different. We need God's ongoing grace as well as his saving grace. God does not save us by grace and then, you know, just withdraws and, and allows us to just stumble through life and get through it somehow. If that was true, we could never have confidence to move ahead in our calling. If it was true, then the Bible's claim that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, Romans 8.37, that would be just wishful thinking. Note that peace follows grace. It is only when we have received the grace of God to, to deal with our sinful conditions that we can have truly have peace. Not, not peace, you know, that is the, the absence of conflict. We're always going to have that. But the peace that God gives us in and through the changing circumstances that we face in day-to-day -day life. Paul follows up his greeting with a magnificent exclamation of praise to God the Father, blessing him for our glorious redemption in Christ. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we see here that God is not only the blessed, but he is also the blesser. He receives the blessing of our thankful and worshipping hearts as his very own people. And he blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So what do we mean by spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? Now, one commentator said, the simplest way to explain this is to contrast them with the blessings of Israel under the law. 
In the Old Testament, a faithful, obedient Jew was rewarded with long life, a large family, abundant crops, and protection from his enemies. And you can read that about that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The blessings of Christianity, in contrast, are spiritual. That is, they deal with treasures that are non-material, invisible, and imperishable. Now, it is, it is true that in the Old Testament, saints, the Old Testament saints also enjoyed some spiritual blessings, but the Christian today enjoys blessings that were unknown in those previous times. Our blessings in the heavenly places literally means of the heavenly regions. The Greek word is epiranos. Instead of being material blessings in earthly places, they are spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And now, you know, I would add that Christians enjoy temporal blessings also. But today we're specifically talking about spiritual blessings in heavenly places. The expression in the heavenly places is used five times in the book of, uh, in this, in the book of Ephesians. And uh, you, you may want to note these, these scriptures and look them up later because each one of them uh, uses that expression, contains that expression in the heavenly places. And... Uh, we see that the heavenly places are the scene of Christ's present enthronement. That is Ephesians 1.20. They are the scene of our present enthronement in Christ in Ephesians 2.6. They are the locale from which angels witness God's wisdom in the church, Ephesians 3.10. And they are the region which is the source of our present conflict with evil spirits. And you can read about that in Ephesians 6, 12. And when we put these passages together, we truly have a scriptural definition of the heavenly places or heavenly regions. And it is most important that we note that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. For it was he who procured them for us through his finished work at Calvary. And they are now available through him to us. Everything that God has for the believer is in the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to receive the blessings, we must be united with Christ by faith. And note, the moment that someone is reunited with Christ, he becomes the possessor of all these spiritual blessings. Lewis Sperry Schaefer comments, To be in Christ, which is the portion of all who are saved, is to partake of all that Christ has done, of all that he is and all that he ever will be. Everyone in the world is either in Adam or in Christ. Those who are in Adam are in their sins and therefore condemned before God. There is nothing they can do in themselves to please God or to gain their, his approval. They have no claim on God and if they were to receive what they deserve, they would perish eternally. But when a person is converted, God no longer looks at him as a condemned child of Adam. Rather, he sees him as being in Christ and he accepts him on that basis. So we can, we can see from this that the, the, the believer's position in Christ is perfect in the true sense of the word. His position can never be improved just like Christ can never be improved. But while the believer's position can never be improved, his practice is subject to continual improvement. And this will continue while, we're, while ever we are in this body, while, we're, wherever in, while ever we are on earth and in the presence of sin. Now, it's very important that we understand 
The difference between our position, which is who we are in Christ, and our practice is what we are in ourselves. And I once had a youth pastor of a, of a, of a large church tell me that he, he cannot sin because he's positionally sanctified in Christ. And I'm sure that that would have been music to some of the people in his youth group. Hey, guys, let's party. We can do whatever we like. We can't sin. We are in Christ. Um, so, you know, it's partly true. The truth is that while our position in Christ is perfect and fixed and immovable, we will also undergo a process of continually becoming more and more Christ-like in our practice, while wherever we are in this body. And, and, and we'll become perfect only when we are in heaven, away from the presence of sin. And we'll explore this a little bit more later. Let's now look at our spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in some detail. Verse 4 speaks of divine election, a spiritual blessing from God the Father. He, that is God, the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. While divine election is a true spiritual blessing from God the Father, it's also a topic that is supremely problematic to the human mind. A divine election and, and predestination, which is just an advance on divine election, have been hotly debated by biblical scholars for centuries. Some deny these doctrines, but they simply cannot make a believable case for, for their denial without doing serious torture to the plain words of Scripture. Understanding the doctrines of election and predestination is not supremely important in one sense. You know, people have still gone to heaven without a proper understanding of these doctrines. However, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that the, if you understand the basic assertion of these teachings, you will have an unshakable source of peace and assurance about salvation. You will definitely not um, be going repeatedly to altar calls, not that we have them here. Um, the Bible teaches that we are chosen unto salvation. God chooses us to belong to him. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 clearly bears this out. But we are bound to give thanks to the Lord always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. In John 15.16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Just three verses later, I chose you out of the world. People want to take some credit for their faith, but the Bible simply does not allow for that. The reason that no one can take any credit is because potentially no one is any better or any worse than the next person. Now, if you can, if you can settle that in your own mind, that all people, without exception, are spiritually dead and radically depraved, which is what the Bible teaches, you will have no problem with the doctrine of divine election. There is simply no way you can come up with a single reason that gives you any credit towards your salvation. What possible reason could you have to claim any credit? Do you claim some credit because, for instance, you were more spiritually enlightened than the next person? Well, you absolutely were not. You were dead, D-E-A-D, -E dead in your trespasses and sins. You could never do anything of spiritual value unless you were first chosen and made alive 
by God. Ephesians 2.1, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Colossians 2.13, and you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. Or perhaps you think you were saved and deserve some credit because you were more determined to seek God than the next person. Well, not according to the Bible. Romans 3, 11 to 12, there is none who seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who seeks God. And just so you get it, no, not one. I, I don't know how much clearer it can be. Can you claim credit for your salvation because you were more intelligent or wise than the next person. The Bible says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 19, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are heading for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligence. No, 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 no. You claim no credit whatsoever. You cannot. The right response to divine election is simply to thank God that the only reason you are a Christian is because he first chose you. God elected you to make you holy so you can be with him forever. You don't need to fully understand the mystery of divine elections, and I, I, don't, I don't think that anyone actually does, but if you, if you believe it, and you should because there's evidence of it throughout the Bible, it will be of immeasurable comfort and assurance to you. There is nothing so reassuring that knowing that our all-knowing and all-powerful Father in heaven of his own free will chose to make you his own. What could possibly go wrong? Well, in this case, nothing. Nothing can possibly go wrong. It was God's initiative, was God's choosing, and it will last forever. Now, let's look at the next spiritual blessing from God, our Father. It says that he predestined us in order to adopt us. Verse 5. For God predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, as we mentioned before, election and predestination are very closely related. Election refers to a people that God has chosen. Predestination refers to the purpose for which God has chosen those he has elected. Now, we can see a great example of this in the Old Testament in the commissioning of the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1, 4 to 5, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, to Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you, and I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. So God tells Jeremiah that he was intimately acquainted with him, even before he was knitted in his mother's womb. God tells Jeremiah, even before he was born, he had already chosen him and predestined him to be set apart for the purpose that he would be a prophet to the nations. The father says that he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. This is a 
predetermined destiny or predestination of those whom God has chosen. God determined our destiny according to his will, to his good pleasure, and to his purposes. Listen to Romans 8, 28 to 29. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God chose us for the purpose of being adopted sons and daughters. But not only that, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans 8.29 One commentator says, Adoption in the New Testament refers to the official act of a father who bestows the status of full adulthood onto a minor son of minor status. It is not the taking of an outsider. It is the placing of a family member into the privileges and blessings of adulthood. This means that even the youngest Christian has everything that Christ has and is rich in grace. Just think about this. God chose you because he decided to adopt you as one of his very own children. But he doesn't treat you like an outsider. He he doesn't just give you some of the privileges and blessings of his son. He gives you all of them. Isn't that amazing? Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through Christ. What? You mean God has adopted me out of slavery and sin to corruption and he's given me the spirit of his son and he looks at me the same way he looks at Jesus? He's made me a legal heir and I inherit everything he has? Wow, that that is just amazing. It's almost inconceivable to the human mind. God in in eternity past chose you for a destiny and he predestined you to become his very own child. This is just so good. It's so good, I'll say it again. God in eternity past chose you for a destiny and that destiny was to become his very own child. Let's not just sweep over that. Let that just settle in your hearts. But why would he do that? Ephesians 1 to 6 tells, sorry, 1 6 tells us that it's to the praise of the glory of his grace that he made us accepted in the beloved. So the ultimate purpose in God predestining us to adoption as his sons and daughters is so that we would receive praise for the glorious grace which he poured out on us in his beloved son. And I can understand why Tom gets hot up here. Now, this verse also tells us that God has accepted us. We, we can find a beautiful illustration of this truth in the book of Philemon in the New Testament. Now, Philemon was a friend of the Apostle Paul who had a runaway slave called Onesimus. And Onesimus had robbed Philemon and then fled to Rome. And he just happened to encounter the Apostle Paul who was serving time in jail. And Paul writes to Philemon, he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains. And it seems that Onesimus became a Christian during the time he spent with Paul, which would be just really unusual, wouldn't it? Um, And Paul, in sending Onesimus back to his master, pleads with Philemon on his behalf. And he says, for perhaps he departed for you for a while. 
from you for a while for this purpose, that you may receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now how much more to you also, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, or in the NASB, uh, sorry, receive him, if you counted me as a partner, receive him, in the NASB it uses accept him, as you would me. And if he's wronged you anything, owes you anything, put that to my account. So Paul, Paul makes this bold request to Philemon to accept Onesimus as he would accept the apostle himself. Reminding us of the words of Jesus to his disciples, Matthew 10, 40. He who receives me and he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. We are reminded that we are received and accepted in the Son, through the undeserved favour, unmerited goodness, and unearned blessing of God the Father to the glory of his grace. Again, the ultimate purpose of election and predestination is so that we would praise God for his glorious grace which is poured out on us by accepting us through his Son. No one but the Father can receive glory for our salvation. It is the gift that he freely bestows upon us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God chooses us, he predestines us, he adopts us, and he accepts us. These are the glorious spiritual blessings of God our Father that is poured out on every believer. And as we finish up, I want to reflect upon what these spiritual blessings mean to us. Understanding that our Heavenly Father has chosen us in Christ means we never need to be lacking in assurance about our identity in Him. God Himself chose us of His own free will, and it's impossible for anyone to reverse that decision, not even you if you are truly saved. It's absurd to believe that God is all-knowing and all-powerful and at the same time think that he could not foresee some future circumstance that would cause him to change his mind about choosing you. That, that just would not happen. That is impossible. God knew you intimately before you were formed in your mother's womb. He decreed every single thing that's happening in your life and that's going to happen and that has happened. He's already decreed it. He chose to make you his twice-born, blood-bought son and daughter in Christ. He, will cho he chose to love you and he will keep you forever. Nothing you have done, nothing you will do in the future will take him by surprise and there is no power in the entire universe that can take you out of his grip. Jesus said, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. John 10, 28 to 29. Understanding that our Heavenly Father has predestined us in Christ means that we should be never lacking in assurance about our destiny. Our destiny is predestined. And most certainly it is to live with Christ forever. But if this was the only purpose God had for saving us, then really we have no reason for being here, do we? You know, we're never going to be any more justified than we already are. So, you know, why doesn't God just take us up, save all this drama? Um, Ephesians 
um, says, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ, for good works which God prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. We are still here so that we can do good works. Not to be saved by them, because, but because God has created us anew in Christ to do these good things which he pre-planned for us. Our good works should purely be for God's own glory and to show off his great workmanship in us because we are in Christ. Uh, um, and, you know, if you're not sure what that should look like, uh, I encourage you to read Matthew 5, 1 to 14. That's commonly known as the Beatitudes. This is a really good place to look. The passage tells us that we are called to be those who mourn over sin, those who display meekness and humility, those who uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who de display acts of mercy, those whose hearts are pure, those who pursue peace with others, and those who are persecuted for doing what is right. And Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. Understanding that the Father has adopted us means that we no longer ever need to feel on the outer with God, not even when we sin. Horatius Bonar, the great Scottish churchman and hymn writer said, be much alone with God. Take time to thoroughly get acquainted. Converse over everything with him. Every thought, every wish, plan, feeling, doubt. He wants not merely just to be on good terms with you, but if we may use man's phrase, but to be intimate. Very good to keep that in mind. God is now our father. He's a good father. He's the best father. And we can safely share every aspect of our lives with him. He's not distant. He's not indifferent. He's very near. No matter what's happening in your life, good or bad, your heavenly father is waiting for you, even when you sin. One of the, the things that I love about reading the Psalms of David is how he not only praises and delights in God, but how he never runs to, from him, but actually runs to him when he sinned, like when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He said, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, Psalm 51. And Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Even when we sin, we never need to run from our Heavenly Father. Our sonship is eternal. He will never disown us. And because God has adopted us into his family, the Holy Spirit plants within us the instinct to call him Father. Romans 8, 15 to 16. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but to receive, but receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Understanding that the Father has accepted us in Christ means that we know that our acceptance is everlasting. God will never find us unacceptable any more than he would ever find Jesus unacceptable. This is our eternal position in Christ that will never, ever change. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was a sign that the Father has accepted his sacrifice 
as full and final payment for the sins of his people. Anyone who's repented of their sins and believed in Christ is now accepted by him, by the Father, in, the, in him by the Father. And because he accepts us in Christ and because of his merit, we will always be accepted by him. So we've looked today at the glorious spiritual blessings of God the Father. And next week, we're going to look at the spiritual blessings that are ours from the Son and from the Holy Spirit. And as we draw, uh, I want to ask, do you know, whoever you are, wherever you're watching, do you know this God the Father who, who chooses, predestines, adopts and accepts guilty sinners into his family? Do you know him? Is he real to you? Are you intimate with him? The only qualification you need to know him and to come to him is to be a sinner in need of salvation. We are all born hopeless, helpless sinners with no ability to make ourselves right with God. In our natural state, we're just destined to be judged according to his holiness and justice. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 Because Jesus took upon himself the sins of his people and bore the wrath of God on their behalf, all who believe and trust in him are no longer under the cloud of God's judgment. Jesus has taken away their sins and they are now at peace with God and call him Abba Father. As God's children, they can enjoy his spiritual blessings now and forever. In the penultimate verse of the Bible, there is an invitation that includes all who will hear it. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. If you have ears to hear and you thirst for eternal life, whoever you are, wait no longer and take the water of life freely. If you want to talk about that, see myself or Keith after the service and we will tell you more about it and how you can be right with God today. Let's pray. Our Father who chooses, predestines, adopts and accepts guilty sinners, vile sinners into his own family, into his own home, around his own table, Lord, what amazing grace, what amazing grace you have displayed towards us through the cross of Christ. Because of which you are just to punish sin and you are the justifier because we are justified in Christ by faith in him. Lord, we, we thank you for this glorious truth. We pray, Lord, that your spirit will draw men and women near today. Lord, we know that no one can come to you unless the Spirit draws them. So we pray, Lord, be at work marvelously, mightily by your Spirit and bring salvation into the hearts and homes of many, even this day. And we ask all this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.